Welcome to the Mad Writers Union. Speculative destruction, one episode at a time. I'm Jay Wolf. I'm Tim Berger. And I'm Nina Niskanen. So today we thought we would talk about different methods of critique. There are kind of a lot of ways to do it. We thought we would talk about a few of the different methods that we've worked with and what we found effective about them and some of the advantages and disadvantages. Because with all of your works, you're going to want to, you have to run it through your alpha readers, your beta readers, and you want to make sure that you uh, not only can get, but also give a good critique, because there's a lot of learning that happens in that space. Absolutely. The different methods are, um, there's the Milford method. There are various modified Milford methods. Depending on how you get together with your group, that'll probably determine what you might have to change. There's the ABCD method, and what I like to call the Jilly Dreadful method. (laughs) (laughs) I also have a lot of experience with a type of critiquing that we usually would call review, as opposed to critique, where it's a slightly more overview commentary as opposed to nitty-gritty. But uh, all of those methods of of approaching critique will give you some different results. And there's also, uh, to go off of that, I know the Milford methods and its variants kind of require personal input at the time where you're actually in a room or conversing with somebody at at one time. There's also different ways of doing critiques when you are not able to talk. Basically, ways to to critique a piece and it's got to be done on the page. So, Oh, yeah. There are definitely some different written methods of critique that are specific to craft uh, rather than when we think of a written critique, we think of an assessment of a piece that's already been published. But there are ways to do written critiques that are more of a beta reading. So let's start with a definition of the Milford method, because if you're going to a workshop, there is a high likelihood that this is the method that you're going to use. Or if you're in in a writing group, chances are that you're going to be using some Milford method or or a variant of it. So in the Milford method, I would say that most of the time you are time limited. Each person kind of goes around the circle to talk about the work that's been presented for critique. Some people like to use the sandwich methods tandem with the Milford, where you're starting with a positive opinion and ending with a positive opinion and putting the more critical material in the center sandwiching it so that you're buffering your commentary with a with a positive on each end. I would say that most groups this is recommended because it keeps tempers down and keeps things feeling a lot more friendly and open. I think it's worth noting that in the Milford method the writer of the work being presented doesn't talk. Correct. Authors who are not being critiqued at the time are the ones who are doing the critiquing. And usually this is time limited. I would say that I've been in in Milford critiques that were usually three to five minutes max. And honestly, sometimes it can be really hard to actually find three to five minutes worth of stuff to say about somebody's piece. So that's usually a good place to start if you're not sure how long a critique you should be allowing people to have. I find that the longer it goes, the more people have just sort of sit there and, and kind of pick at individual things. If you want to keep people moving along a shorter period of time per speaker is a good place to start. The order of the the Milford to go along with this is pretty much as Jay has stated, the way that it's normally done, the writer sits in one spot and then you go around in a circle. Every person has their X amount of time. And then once it circles back to the author, 
this is the time that the author can offer some questions and clarifications. The, the thing that's important here is that the author is not there to defend the work. Correct. You're not there necessarily to say, well, I wrote it this way because blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, that's not the point. Hmm. <laughs> In fact, that's... The opposite of the point. Yeah, yeah. you definitely don't want to do that because what you need to be aware of is that even if that's your intention, if that's not getting across, that's important information for you to have. Right. But when it gets back around to the author, the author says thank you because the things that are being said are valid. And then if there are any questions about certain critiques, that's the time to ask them. It's also a time for the author to ask at that point if certain points were getting across. That's Milford basically encapsulated right there. There's also an offshoot of Milford that was written down by Claire Light, but I'm not sure if she was the first one to express them. But this is a school of workshopping where you don't say that I, I think this is bad or I think this is good, but it's more about doing objective, sort of like recognition of the fiction. Like, I see that you did this here. Was this intentional? Yeah, it's really just a way of tooling your language so that the focus is on different approaches to the way that the way that the critique is applied. And I'm glad you brought up the word language because there's a certain language that you have to either critiquing or being critiqued that you have to understand with the group that you're in. Having a commonality of critique language is also important. I know that in Kat's class, one of our assignments was to read over the Turkey City Lexicon, which is a really good resource, especially for science fiction, fantasy, horror people, is a good sort of base guideline for things that come up in the critiquing process. Just here are common pitfalls in short fiction novels that happen to be in our chosen genres and sort of creates a base language that people can use to refer to while doing these kind of critiques because it gives you a little bit of what I call a verbal shorthand that creates a little bit of efficiency and camaraderie. That can be really important. You do want to all be on the same page in terms of what is desired from the final draft. If someone is doing a short story and it's for, you know, a contest with a short, short turnaround time, that's going to be a little different from, say, a novel draft that's in maybe its second or third incarnation and may still need a little bit more work structurally before honing in on the fine details of the language. And so having that commonality to start with can be really important. Let's identify the important things that you need to get across when giving a critique. You want to express to the author what worked. That's actually almost as it, almost more important than what didn't work, but Exactly. so that it doesn't get eradicated in the rewrite. And then, you know, and, and then on the other side, what doesn't work? I'm probably going to harp on this a little bit, but it's important when you're giving the critique to be not prescriptive. You're not trying to give them solutions to whatever problems that you may perceive. You say, hey, I didn't really, you know, what's going on in this spot here? You don't want to say, I think you should move this character over into this other scene. Yeah, I would say that there's, and this kind of goes into the different methods of critique, because I think that there is definitely a place for that type of prescription, but I would say that that goes more to 
to your beta readers who are not necessarily reading in a group context. That goes mm-hmm. to the person who's handling your manuscript and going like, okay, this has been through one tier of discussion and sort of here's where I'm at. I'm going to argue in favor of prescriptive only in the in the case that you could say it as here was what I was expecting or here's, you know, as a reader, here's where I where I'm coming from about this. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's one of those types of items that should be presented in sort of an I statement, not like a you didn't. But here's like an I would or I might. Very important not to make it like you didn't do something correctly, but here's one way that I, as a reader, I might expect this story to go. And because you didn't go that way, you know, here's one thing that that the reader might be expecting that didn't happen. A lot of this kind of stuff, too, that you have to sort of get into a mode of not seeing critique as a whole as here's what you did wrong because a lot mm-hmm. of times people do go into it with that attitude and then that defensiveness kind of defines the entire process of critiquing for them so let me ask you guys something uh about because we were talking about the time limited portion of about this and i i, I want to see if my experience is similar with critiquing as you guys uh experience sure so in a milford style uh critique that we did at uh, viable paradise Yes. I found that when I went first, when I was the person giving the first critique, that time sprinted away from me. <laughs> I yes. felt like I could only cover like two or three topics. And I still had like other things that I wanted to mention before I was out of time. Whereas if I was in any other spot in that circle, I felt like I had enough time to address everything in there. So is that just me? I would say that that's that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I was going to say about that, Tim, is that that's very true. Yeah. And that's actually, depending on the variant of, of Milford that you're using, in some variants of Milford, you're actually not supposed to harp on something somebody's already mentioned. So you mm-hmm. would actually say, like, ditto to Tim's idea that, you know, thought that this particular area of the story needed a little bit more detail or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You're not supposed to sit and harp on the exact same thing because that can contribute to that whole kind of being bagged on feeling. Mm -hmm. So if you ditto things, then you end up running out of stuff to say. I know that when I was taking Cat Rambo's class, which does a variation on Milford, usually three minutes, I think we had. And once the first person went, nobody took three minutes (laughs) because there was always something where you'd be like, oh, yeah, and I really agreed with Stephanie's point that X, Y, Z or, you know, whatever. Oh, that's interesting because I think that I've always used up all my time, no matter where what position I was in. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to try and just corroborate things that other people are saying, if that's true, purely because I know that I get defensive if I have too many people bagging on one specific detail. Is there anything that is off limits in Milford? Yes, the person. That's it right there. The critique has to be... <laughs> You have to be very focused to make sure that you're not saying you are doing X, Y, Z. It has to be about the story. Right. You don't want it to sound like a a critique of that person. And I think that that's true for any method of critique. But it's important to keep in mind that sometimes even when you're talking about a story, it's very common, especially if you're trying to fill up that three minutes or whatever, you know, period of time you have, that sometimes the language sounds like, you know, you're doing this or you're doing that. It has to be, you know in the story, you know, maybe it's something that you did, but you want to make sure that the phrasing doesn't actually do that. 
Yeah, and that's particularly important, especially if you are addressing something sensitive. Yes, very <laughs> much so. If something's coming across in the story as in any number of ways uh, as... Racist, classist, misogynist. Exactly, offensive in some way. That's a fine line to walk. But the critique needs to really stress about the story and not about the person writing the story. So yeah, that's a very important point. The other one that you guys will be able to go into better detail than I would is the ABCD method, which are things to look out for while you're reading a work to be critiqued so that you can make recommendations based on all of those points which are acronymed in the ABCD method. I'm not sure if it was Mary Robinette Cole who actually came up with this method, but she's who I learned this method from. ABCD stands for awesome, boring, confusing, and disbelief. And that's a that's a handy language to have. Yes. Yes. Yeah, go into the details on that, Nina, because it, it, it's helpful here. Basically, you focus on stuff that's awesome, because if you think it's awesome, other readers might find it awesome, and you don't want it to get cut. Like Jay said earlier, it's very, very important not to cut the awesome out of your novel. Then there's boring. There's... Jilly keeps talking about this in our class, that there's stuff that a writer needs to write, but a reader doesn't necessarily need to read. Yes. Oh my god, I struggle with this so much. <laughs> yes. The boring stuff usually falls under this. Yes. You need to know this stuff, but the reader doesn't necessarily need their time wasted with this. Mm -hmm. There's confusing, which is more or less self-explanatory. At least for me, this is very much a common pitfall, because there's stuff that seems entirely self-explanatory that apparently my readers often find going off to La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> and that may be a slight problem. <laughs> That's what the confusing tag is for. And then there's disbelief, which is either about a, a character doing stuff that doesn't make sense for them. Yeah, and you can use disbelief to flag things that you're just like, oh, come on, that's not... It doesn't have to be character-related. That's not a reasonable outcome of this situation. Yeah, deus ex machinas often fall under the disbelief. Yeah, and I use ABCD quite a bit. The two that I use most often are disbelief and confusion. The one that's hardest to do is boring. <laughs> Because I'm I'm often reading critiques for friends, and it's hard to say, hey, this section here is boring. But if you're on the same language, and if you put boring in there and you understand that... They're, you're not saying that they are a bore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And most of the time, boring is a pacing problem, or it's a over-detail. And boring is one of the really, really useful ones to do, because it, especially... With short stories, it helps tighten up your prose a lot if you know where, where it starts to slow down. But each one of them is important. So there's the, the moments where you have the verbal critiques. Usually when you're doing a verbal critique, you're also going to be marking up a hard copy or an electronic copy as well. And here you can get into a little more detail, but it all depends on who you're doing the critique for and what they're expecting. And I think it's really important if you're not in a workshop setting, and if you're just doing critiques back and forth amongst friends or other writers that you know, it's kind of on the writer's responsibility 
to identify what they're looking for. I, I've had people give me their stuff, and these are usually beginning writers, and they say, hey, can you critique this for me? And I can tell right away what they're looking for is validation, not commentary, help me get to the next level or whatever. If if you can get to that next level where you're looking at, hey, help me get the story better, I'm looking to see if my point of view is right in this, or does how's the pacing in that? If you can define for your critiquing group the things that you need that's really important so that you're getting as much out of it and they're providing the feedback that you're going to need to get that story to the next level. So another thing about written critiques, because I come from a, a background of doing critiques that are sort of more, I would say more general with maybe a few details pulled out. I belonged to a written critique group for a long time where we would not necessarily do line by line critique, which I think could probably be its own discussion. There are some online groups that do line by line, which I think is, unless you're a beginning author who needs help with basic structural stuff, I usually find line by line a little off-putting because I don't want someone correcting my grammar just because they think it's wrong and their teacher said so. I'm, I'm not a grammarian, so I appreciate that kind of work from somebody whom I've requested that from. But otherwise, I find that that, that type of critique, it, it gets a little forced for the trees and that you, you spend time on the wrong parts of fixing the piece. And you sit there, you know, figuring out where your split infinitives are, but you didn't figure out whether or not the plot was meaningful. Yeah, that's really important. Um, it's okay to do occasional line edits, especially for something that's obvious, typo or something like that, just to, to point it out. Really spend your time on structural, character, plot. If you didn't believe the story, then it doesn't matter whether or not they got all of their sentence fragments collected up properly because it still didn't make sense in the end. There's nothing wrong with sentence fragments in their place. No, there's not. <laughs> no, there isn't. But it's one of those things that newer authors will grab in a frenzy to have something to say about a piece this is true. without thinking about the greater structure of the piece. So we've been talking a lot about Milford. What are some other techniques out there? What are some other critique styles? Oh, well, I mean, I was talking about the review style, which is, again, sort of overview style, which is not entirely dissimilar from Milford. It's just that it would be a written exchange with somebody. They're sort of giving you their thoughts in writing about about a piece, and then you you know you have the the openness to choose to respond with as little as you know thank you for the review or as much as you know detailed rebuttal <laughs> <laughs> as i've received occasionally in in return for these kind of things there's also what i like to call the jilly dreadful method jilly dreadful has a phd in literature or creative writing. She basically created her own method for the use of brainery courses because she can. Her method is that the writer reads their stuff aloud if it's a short story and then there's an allotted time for for discussion about the piece and anyone can talk at any time about anything. Huh. Okay. That's really neat. It is, because it always brings up stuff in discussion that wouldn't necessarily come up in a Milford-style group. I think that that also requires a certain level of trust between the participants, which 
is important to build up in general. But... This is also why she has everyone sign a contract to, you know, yes, own their and promise to, you know, yes. Not is that moderated either. so that you don't go too far afield, or do you just allow things to go that far afield? I've only seen this once used in in this one class in over several classes of course everyone really wants to get their their stuff out on the piece so i find that people do self-moderate while because there's only a, a certain amount of time for every piece and if that gets spent on sure. stuff that doesn't matter then it's spent and you don't get to say the stuff that Mm -hmm. And plus, there's also, Jilly does some moderation, but I find that she doesn't really need to do that much because everyone keeps moderating themselves. It definitely draws back to um, who you're critiquing with. And I think that when we were talking about that in the episode about workshops is sort of the expectation when you pay for a workshop is, is usually a little bit different than yeah. a group that you've just assembled out of this is true uh you know random friends so sometimes that's yeah sometimes that actually can contribute to the specific benefits of that workshop is that everybody has paid for this experience and thus they are going to put a little bit more effort and energy into it because otherwise what's the mm -hmm. point yeah so we've talked a lot about what to do, giving a critique and, and what have you. When you're receiving a critique, there are certain things that you should really endeavor to do uh, to make sure that one, you're getting the most out of it, two, that you're not blindsided by things. Because the, the one thing that you should be doing when actually receiving a critique is, first thing is do not take it personally, even though that they're talking about your baby Yes. Don't internalize this. Don't internalize. This is about the words on the paper, not your heart. <laughs> um, uh, yes. And a, another important thing is when receiving a critique is that you have to realize that no matter what they say, you can take it or leave it. What they're saying is going to be valid no matter what they say because it's true to them. It might be true to them, but it might also be that they're recognizing a symptom rather than the actual disease. Yeah, exactly. So even if you don't take the actual advice, it might point you to... Different types of fixes. Yes. And there are sometimes you just have to look at their critique and just say, well, fuck it, they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have an experience where they're going to be like, I didn't get this entire thing. And you can just say... Okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> I know I've had that experience uh, reading other people's work. And even on the pieces that I don't connect with, I've always tried to relate to it on some level, whether it's characterization or what have you. If, if I'm not into that genre, I try to offer something, which you should try to do. You should endeavor to do. <laughs> if you don't connect with a piece, maybe, and if you can't say anything positive about it or something that's going to help them, it may be just useful just to say, I don't get this. I'm sorry, I couldn't deliver for you. As a critiquer, there's going to be a time where there's something that you bounce off of and it's nothing personal to the author. There's nothing that you can really do about it. If it doesn't resonate with you, it doesn't resonate with you. And this is where group critiques are useful because 
unless everyone in the entire group bounces off of it, then you can isolate, okay, well, this person doesn't read heroic fantasy, so right. this is not my target audience. And here's how someone who's not my target audience is receiving this. But it's sometimes helpful to bring in people who are coming from a different genre to read your work. Oh, yeah. Sometimes that's actually really helpful. Yeah. I, I like that cross-pollination kind of critique because they're going to be coming at it from a different perspective. And they'll, they'll probably be talking about like a character distance and, and what have you. I really like Google Docs for critiquing, mostly because it really works well with the group influence that Jilly's method has. Yes. Because people can comment on each other's comments and, you know, there can be long discussions related to some comment. People can disagree and agree and go off of each other. And I, I found that uh, w when I took an online course, we worked through Google Docs and we had a lot of that where somebody would men mention a comment, somebody would ditto that. We would have yes. anti-dittos, which, which meant that, hey, I, I don't agree with you here. And that, that's good because you get a discussion going there. The only problem I have with Google Docs is that if somebody's critiqued the piece first... There's no way that I, I have not found a way that you can hide other people's comments and can still mark things up. You can hide the comments, but you can't hide other people's comments while being able to critique it yourself. But that that that's only in, in certain situations where that's where, where I want to look at a piece fresh. I would say I would just turn the comments off and then turn them back on when I'm ready to actually talk. But so this mm -hmm. actually is an interesting question because I think that there are some people who don't actually know where to begin with this kind of thing. Where you look at it and you go like, I don't even know where I'm supposed to start, you know, making commentary about this piece. And I would say that it's especially true with written formats because mm -hmm. written written commentary can can be difficult to to figure out where you should start. What I usually do is I do one clean read where I'm doing no note taking, no nothing, where I just I'm reading it and and I'm taking it in as it is. If it's on a paper printout, I might make little pencil marks so that I know, oh, okay, I had a thought about this area or something like that. But I usually try to do a few reads to actually get to the point where I have, mm -hmm. where I'm starting to actually make physical notes. Well, you know, there's advantages advantages and disadvantages to doing it each way. And, and when you're doing it, you have to pick one way. Sure. You're either going to make the comments as you go, so you keep that in your mind fresh. Yeah. Or you read the whole thing through and you might do some, like I've done highlighter and things like that. So you get the whole piece, but you might go back to the highlighted section and think to yourself, well, I, I don't know what I was right. doing here. So there's give and take to both. But I, I agree. Google Docs is very helpful for those group settings and, and what have you. So basically, don't be a dick. Yeah. Rule number one. <laughs> Continue mention, not being a dick. Mention the stuff you like as well as the stuff you didn't like. The stuff you like is sometimes important. Be on topic. Do what works yes, for you. very important. Make sure you're making it about the, uh, the work, not the author. Both in giving and receiving the critique. So, Tim, have you read any good books lately? Ah, uh, yes, I have read a good book. And this is a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time. 
The Player of Games by Ian M. Banks is the second novel of the Culture series that he wrote back in 1988. And it's, it's a fascinating book. I really enjoy it. I like the themes that he explores. And it, it's a chihuahua killer. It's a pretty big book, but it's really engaging and he really kind of explore some interesting topics with this one the main character is kind of dealing with this malaise this ennui in his life of, of not being able to live in a sufficient way and yet there's always this undercurrent that something's gonna come and bite him bite him in the ass at some point so basically what you're saying is it's a feel-good book. no <laughs> <laughs> It's not a feel-good book, but it's not its not an all-doom-and-gloom book. I have a hard time describing the book, but I really enjoyed it. It's probably his most famous of the culture novels. Player of Games in M. Banks. Very good. Jay, what have you been reading? I am picking for this time around the Future Visions Anthology, mm. which is a collection oh, of original science fiction yeah. by Microsoft. I've only gotten through the Kane and McGuire story, which is in that collection, which I wanted to read specifically because I'm doing a study on deafness and sign language and other methods of communication. But yeah, so Future Visions is a collection of short fiction by a bunch of contemporary authors that are all specifically inspired by technology that Microsoft is working on. If I remember correctly, they invited all of the authors to come and actually do a tour through their different uh, facilities. Yeah, the research facilities. Cool. Yeah, it's incredibly rad. <laughs> I am not all the way through it yet, but I, I feel pretty confident giving a recommendation for that. So Future Visions, my recommendation for this one. Nina, what you been reading? So I'm still in the middle of my um, epic Shannon Maguire reread. And I'm going to go ahead and recommend Sparrow Hill Road. The main character is a highway ghost. Oh. It's basically Americana squared. She gets around hitchhiking. And there are a number of other types of ghosts. And there are witches who get their power from stuff that has traveled a lot. Ah, there's a villainous car who goes around killing people. Cool. And yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This has been the Mad Writers Union. Now let's get to work. Our intro music is Cephalopod, and our interlude music is Exotics, both by Kevin McLeod at Incomtech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like what we do or have a suggestion, drop us a line. You can reach us at our website, madwritersunion.com. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash themadwritersunion. You can tweet to us on our Twitter handle, at MadWritersUnion. And last but not least, you can email us at MadWritersUnion at gmail.com. Not not (laughs) Neo. I I just rewatched Matrix again.
Oh, okay. And I realized just how hot Hugo Weaving is. Back to that rewards section. <laughs> wow, I just keep on opening my mouth and you guys just keep <laughs> saying what I was just going to say. It's, it's it's the keep team quiet. <laughs> Conspiracy. <laughs> yep. Okay. I see how it is. Yep.